0: This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Chris Sinzak and Aaron Camaro.
1: All right, it's time for a rock and roll party in a podcast. That's right, this is the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro, joined as always by my awesome friend and kick-ass co-host, Chris Sinzak. How you doing, man? Good, how are you? I'm doing all right, you know. It's been crazy times. Crazy times all around, you know, especially after, you know, everybody knows what we did last week with Rock and Ron and talking about Rock and Pod, but mostly about Rock and Ron. We got to carry on, you know. We got to carry on. That's the way Ron would want it, right? Absolutely. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So we're back once again this week. We pulled another rabbit out of the hat. A crazy idea. We're going to run past you. I think we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. And I think you're going to like it a lot. So stick around with us for that. But uh, before we get too much further into it, you know, it's always awesome to stop for a minute and just let you guys know how much we appreciate you, you know, as listeners of the show, as people that, you know, give comments to us, reach out to us and personal messages and stuff like that. You know, I had a lot of really awesome people reach out to me after last week's episode. And, you know, it's the response and the friendship and the love that we feel because we lost our great friend Rock and Ron, you know, and it wasn't just a loss for us. It was a loss for so many people, but just to see the, every, the way everybody pulled in tight around us, man, it, it warms my heart, man. I just want to say thank you to everybody.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll echo those sentiments. Yeah, well, you we think we both had a lot of people, you know, reach out to check on us and make sure we're okay and everything, and, and we appreciate that. And it's been uh, it's been a rough few weeks, few months. It's been a rough year, <laughs> but. Um, yeah. We're, uh, but yeah, we're gonna keep going forward. But yeah, having um, the support we have from you guys, you know, you're not just listeners; we feel like you're family to us. And indeed, we uh, we were recording a Chris and Aaron show before for the Patreon VIPs, and um, a lot of stuff we're looking to plan out soon to, to kind of celebrate our ten years with you guys. So um, stay tuned for that. But yeah, just you know, without having people listen, it'd just be two guys talking to themselves. So uh, thank you all for everything.
1: In the spirit of Rock and Ron and in the spirit of Adam Cox and any friends we lose along the way, we keep the show rolling on. We got to because that's the way those guys would want it. That's the way you got to have it, and it's the way we got to give it to you, and we're going to keep doing it every single week. So before we lay down to you what we're presenting to you this week, it's a mind-boggling thing. Before we get to all that, We got to take care of our business. And why am I so excited to take care of the business this week? Because holy shit, we've got some
2: reviews. It's about damn time.
1: (laughs) Can you believe it? Five stars, even. You got to love that. So, if you don't know, we're the Decibel Geek podcast. We talk about rock and roll and we beg for reviews. That's kind of our thing. And every so often we run out, it makes us sad but not for long because we've got people out there that got our backs and they leave us awesome reviews. There's three great places to do it. You can do it at Apple Podcasts. You can do it on Podchaser, which is an awesome website for reviewing podcasts. And you can also leave us Facebook recommendations. And this week, we got one on Apple and we also got one on Facebook. So let's get right to it because this first one's awesome and it's five stars. It's entitled One of the Best. And it goes a little something like this. Sarah Coning, Conan O'Brien, Joe Rogan, Ira Glass, Pat Francis, Aaron Camaro, and Chris Sinzak are considered by most as podcast royalty.
2: (laughs) That's news to me.
1: (laughs) What separates these greats is the content. And the absolute best and most entertaining content is provided by the boys at Decibel Geek. Chris and Aaron have the voices of angels and the vocabulary of drunken sailors. Give it a try, and I promise you'll love it. And that comes to us from Fox DN1, an Apple podcast from right here in the USA. I don't even know what to say about that. That's,
2: that's something. Well, I fucking love that review.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know some of them people on that list are famous podcasters. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah. That's, uh, some, that's some high praise right there to put lumpus in with some of those people.
1: I've heard of a couple of them.
2: Yeah, they're all big names in the podcast space. So uh, thank you very much for that. That's awesome.
1: And we're right there with them, according to that review. I believe it. Wow. Not bad. Uh, not, not bad at all. all. But you know what? We got another one. How cool is this? This one's a Facebook recommendation, and it comes to us from our old awesome friend, Brent Tibbetts. Man, that guy's been with us for a while. He recommends the Decibel Geek podcast and says they are the best. I've listened for years and is one of the highlights of my week. If you love hard rock and metal, this podcast will make your brain smile.
2: Thank you so much, Brent. Yeah, Brent's been a listener for a long time.
1: So poetic. So beautiful. I love it. What a great review.
2: Making brains smile. That's a new Mm -hmm. one. I've never heard that type of compliment, but I like it.
1: I like it a lot too. And the more brains we can make smile, the better we're going to feel about it. And that's what's so important about reviews is because people are out there, they're looking for a podcast about hard rock and metal. It's got to be good. It's got to make my brain smile. And reviews like that, That sends people right to the Decibel Geek Podcast. The party grows a little bit more. We show the world that hard rock and classic metal music is viable and important. And that's what we're doing all the time. Letting people know rock and roll is still here and it's still kicking ass. And there's a whole lot of people that still love it.
2: Thank you so much for for both of those reviews. Those are great. And uh, uh, we have our other people to thank. These are the Geeks of the Week.
1: These are the awesome people that took the time to get out there on the internet and share the word of the Decibel Geek, to let people know what's going on over here. It's a great way to let them know. Let your friends know, hey, there's something really cool going on over here. Last week, man, it was an emotional one. It was really tough to get through. But you know what? Like I said, in the spirit of Rock and Roll, in the spirit of guys like Adam Cox, who love this music and loved the Decibel Geek podcast and helped us and were a huge part of it, we're going to carry on. And so last week... We had a lot of people that wanted to share it and show the world how much they love Rock and Ron Runyon and how much they love Decibel Geek. And by doing that, they are honorary Geeks of the Week.
2: Geeks of the Week this week are Adam Cox, Rock and Ron Runyon, Bill Elam, Jay Shabluski, Jeffrey Mendenhall, David Glenn, Joseph Capone, Mark Alden Taylor, Mark and Jerry BS Sessions, Pantheon Podcast, Kristen Schimbeck, Keith Rockford, Al Horta, Sit and Spin with Joe, Mike Parnell, Kevin Williams, Aaron Baker, Ralph Vieira, Kenneth Roy. David Cathy, Doug Fox, J.J. McElhinney, Cobras and Fire podcast, Ernesto Aguiar, Grayson Gallegos, Kevin's on Fire, Scott Crouch, and as always, the The Mooger
1: Mooger Fooger. Fooger. That's right. Those are our favorite people in the whole dang world right there. If you want to become an honorary geek of the week and hear your name read on next week's episode, all you've got to do is what these fine people did. They found the original tweet on Twitter. They found the original post on Facebook. They shared it. They retweeted it. Either one, both, whichever. we also got Instagram. You can check that out, too. There's some really badass photos on there right now of Ugly Kid Joe's return to the United States. And Judas Priest was there, too.
2: <laughs> you, know, the, the, you and Metal Mike are the two people in America that would put it that way.
1: Yeah, and Metal Mike was there. My hero... And he was right down in the front taking pictures, man. So if you want to see those photos, get yourself over to Decibel Geek on Instagram because I don't know how many of those photos are out there, but I do know out of the ones that are middle Mike's got the best eye and took the best photos, so check those out on Instagram. Thank you to everybody that supports this show, gets out and shares it, retweets it. our geeks of the week. Thank you to everybody that donated to help Rock and Ron's family. man, we started out with a goal of 5,000. at last check that thing was over nine grand. You guys have brought it deep and really made it count. We're so proud to be a part of that and so happy to be able to help out Ron's family. I know it would mean the world to him, so thank you to everybody that's done that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for doing that. Let's uh let's try to get it over ten thousand uh to kinda drive the point home and get that double what the goal was. And um yeah, Dawn reached out and, and you know, she appreciates every one of you that's donated to to that cause and it's gonna help them a lot as they try to move forward through this. And yeah, as you can imagine, medical bills for cancer are not good and um it's uh it's gonna help them a lot as they try to navigate their way forward. But uh she also mentioned she listened to the episode and, and got back to me and said, "I thanks so much for doing the episode. It was great to listen. And she said, I'm reminded that I can go on to YouTube and, you know, li- you know, watch some old episodes of uh, Friday Night Live. And anytime I want to hear them, I still can. So thank you yeah. for that.
1: That's, that's magical right there. I love that.
2: Yeah. Really is a time capsule, you know, these podcasts and videos and stuff.
1: Oh, shit. My great-great-grandkids are probably going to
2: listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Great-grandpa was weird. Yeah, that's what I am saying. <laughs> yeah, this could be good or bad depending on what kind of content we put out.
1: Uh-huh. Well, if the last 10 years is any kind of uh, barometer of that, we're in trouble. <laughs> right. Before we get to rocking in this week's episode, just want to let you guys know, once again, we are a part of Pantheon Podcast. What is that? It's a huge umbrella. It's one of those things with all the the columns on it. It's its fortitude and its strength and its awesomeness in podcasting. We're a part of that. And so are a whole lot of other really awesome music podcasts. You know, it would really help us out. If you took a minute to shoot Pantheon a message real quick and tell them how much you appreciate them helping out the decibel geek podcast while Chris and I are here missing the big
2: meeting
0: (laughs) (laughs) to bring you
1: guys an episode.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but we're putting our show first and getting it done.
1: That's the way Pantheon wants it. So I'm sure that those guys will understand, but, uh, I guess I'm ready if you are.
2: Yeah, let's go.
1: All right, so the premise of this when it came into my warped mind was, you know, producers are pretty damn important to albums, you know? They can really make or break a situation. You could have the greatest band in the world and a terrible producer and the album's not going to be that great. You know, you can have all these different scenarios where an album may have been improved if maybe somebody else was at the helm of the creation of it all with the band. And so that got me thinking, like if you could switch and swap around rock and roll fantasy style, take a producer that you think would have done a better job on an album if he were at the helm as opposed to who was already there. So I said to Chris, you know, hey, what do you think about this? It's like a producer swap or a producer switch. You know, if you could take a producer and put them in a situation that would improved it for whatever band or artist or album we're talking about what are some of the ones you would pick and so that's kind of what we're doing today i think it's going to be fun and interesting we like to try new things so you guys bear with us for this what do you think chris you think it's going to be good
2: i do i like the idea of it and i kind of agonized over my choices and i do think we you know we might disagree with some of the uh the producers you know swaps that we're looking at doing here so um, I don't know. And the biggest thing is I'm, I'm excited to see uh, the comments from you guys on what you think, if you think we're right or wrong or what albums you would, you know, put a different producer on because I, I, I'm interested in the feedback.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm really interested to hear what people say, too, because this thing is it's really endless. You know, you could go down a rabbit hole with this and be like, oh, switch him for them. Them for this. This is the reason why. It would be so much better if this guy would have done it instead of that. And it could go on forever. So, this may be something that we can revisit in the future. But today, we just picked out each of our five, some of our favorites that that we think would be good, interesting things to talk about, how it could have been. And if you are a Decibel Geek VIP, then you will know exactly how we worked it out to do this episode. Because to figure out how we were going to present it, we actually recorded an episode of the Chris and Aaron show where we figured it out between the two of us exactly how this is going to go. What we were able to establish is that we each have two of the same artists, but probably not the same albums. So we're going to save the artists that we picked two from till the end, and then we'll hit those. So do you want to go first or should I?
2: Um, I'll go first, I guess. Okay.
1: So what do you got for your first producer switch?
2: All right, so <laughs> So and like this is weird because like you know some of these I do like the album, some of these I don't like the album. So it's it's not always a case of me going I hate this album, so therefore I'm going to I want to change the producer and see if it would make it better. Although in the first album I picked that is kind of the case because I really don't like this record. And um much to the chagrin of Well, even Aaron and Rob Kern and Ralph Vieira and other people that love this record for God knows whatever reason. But I think this album sucks. I'm talking about Black Sabbath's Born Again album. I knew it. (laughs) I don't like this record. This album came out in 1983. And I'm another thing people give me shit for. But, hey, I like what I like and I don't like what I don't like. Um, I'm not a fan of Ian Gillen. I, I respect him. I like some of those songs that Deep Purple did with him, but he's not my favorite vocalist, and he's probably my least favorite vocalist that Sabbath ever had. I just don't care for his voice. Aside from that, though, my biggest hang-up with this record is the production. And uh, this was produced by Black Sabbath along with Robin Black, and Robin Black was an engineer on Sabotage, but he's mostly known for doing um, Jethro Tull records in the 70s. Hmm. And he also, I think he worked with Deep Purple a little bit too, but this sounds like a group of crazy people on cocaine making a record. Well, wait a minute. That's actually what this is.
1: <laughs> Produced by Black Sabbath and the country of Colombia.
2: Uh, funded by Peruvian marching dust. Um, this, <laughs> this album, it's just over the top in every way, and maybe that's why some people love it, um, but to me everything sounds peaked out to the max and the drums sound really you know compressed the drums have a weird sound on them and this was Bill Ward coming back to the album but um, Ian Gillen's vocals are like twice as loud as everything else except for Tony Iommi's guitar tone which normally I love but his lead playing on this album is so shrill sounding hmm. that it drives me up the wall so those are my, my hangups with it The person I would exchange, well, the actual producer that should have come in, um, would be Martin Birch, because, you know, Martin did Heaven and Hell, and he did Mob Rules.
1: Well, he's the classic guy.
2: Yeah, and he did a lot of Deep Purple stuff, too, so he knew how to work with Ian Gillen. But, you know, it's just like, you have a good track record going (laughs) with, with Mob Rules and Heaven and Hell, so why do you drop Martin Birch and say, oh, well, we'll just do a bunch of fucking cocaine and do this ourselves. That's just not good um probably
1: martin birch maybe said to them said you guys ever think maybe you do too many drugs you're out of here mate
2: i don't know although i did read i I started doing some reading up on that because i'm not like super schooled on the background on this but apparently they wanted to do this as a like a super group and not call it black sabbath and don arden the manager um insisted they use that name um
1: can we right. call it Deep Purple? No. Right. Uh, then we're calling it Sabbath, and that's final.
2: And then apparently they had considered Robert Plant and David Coverdale before selling on Ian Gillen.
1: Wow. And they i even, wonder, would they have done it?
2: I don't know. Probably not. Um, I mean,
1: it's real easy to say, well, yeah, we'd like Robert Plant to come in here and sing on this album.
2: I, I can't see Robert Plant doing it. David Coverdale might have considered it. I don't know, but and then they also had an audition tape from michael bolton when they were making this record wow yeah
1: how crazy would that have been
2: yeah it could have gone very different ways but to me i think you know martin birch with you know his track record and his history with sabbath already i think he would have been a great producer for this and would have given it a better shot but uh, not my favorite record but i would have loved to hear what he could have done with it hmm
1: you know what, I'm not going to disagree with that. And I'm, I'm not nearly the hater of that album as you are. Right. But some of the stuff you'd say is valid, you know, as far as the, the tone and, you know, the, the overall sound, the kind of the strangeness of the drums on the album. I think the songs are great, and I'm a fan yeah. of Ian Gillen, so I dig it. You know, I, I've always liked that album. And really, if you think about it, it makes sense where that would have been more of... It's not really Sabbath, you know, to me, that's when I think of Black Sabbath, you know, obviously you think of Ozzy and you think of Dio and then you think of Tony Martin and then you think of like the one off guys, you know, and and Ian was one of them. But if you're the lead singer of Deep Purple, then anything you perform on sounds like Deep Purple. Mm hmm you can't take the deep purple out of Ian Gillen. So it's not Sabbath. It's not deep purple. It's something weird in between where I think Martin Birch could have gave it more of classic Sabbath sound, you know, the heaviness, the crunchiness of it. The songs were there. Ian Gillen sings like a motherfucker on it, and I like that. But, yeah, the production is a little funny. I'll agree with that.
2: Well, and there's, you know, there's some of the songs, they're like, I agree, there is good material here. Like, I mean, Disturbing the Priest is cool. Uh, mm-hmm. The title track's cool. Zero of the Hero is cool. Yeah, yeah. But, like, does Zero of the Hero need to be seven and a half minutes long? Like, there, it's, <laughs> there's some overindulgent <laughs> shit going on on this record.
1: It's cocaine. Exactly. It's cocaine.
2: <laughs> but, like, and, you know, and I still take the, the, the tact of, you know, and I know we got Dio out of it, which is great, but imagine if Dio had stayed on board and what they could have done with him after Mob Rules, you know?
1: yeah. Maybe only if Martin Birch would have stuck around. Maybe.
2: I don't know. But no, and I'm sure I'm going to get hate for for not liking this record. I love that record. Although some of you, I think, just think you're cool to say you like it.
1: Well, as you deserve. You should get shit for not liking it. Because, I mean, to say you like it isn't very cool. But who knows?
2: But I do think the, um, I wonder if the baby on the album cover tried to sue Black Sabbath.
1: (laughs) No, that's one where you could say, hey, man, that messed me up for life.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You made me look like Satan. (laughs) (laughs) Satan files a lawsuit against Black Sabbath. Uh (laughs) Don't use my baby pictures.
1: (laughs) All right. That's a good one, man. That's exactly what I had in mind when I thought of doing this. So I agree with it. You want to hear my first one? Yeah. All right. Well, this one is in recent Decibel Geek news because at Rockin' Pod, we got to talk to Billy Sheehan and Greg Bissonette about the album Eat em and Smile, which is an amazing album. I think everyone will agree. It pretty well kicks ass. A couple of little weird spots on there, but for the most part, totally killer album. But the follow-up was 1988 Skyscraper. Yeah. Now, you got all the same guys, right? But the difference between the two albums is Ted Templeman. Ted Templeman produces Eat 'em and Smile, which is a stroke of genius. I mean, you're going to get this amazing band that talent wise could rival Van Halen, you know, because that's what David Lee Roth had to do. What's one step better than that? You go get the classic Van Halen producer to produce Eat 'em and Smile, and it worked out perfectly because Van Halen fans love that album
0: because oh,
1: it reminds them of the Van Halen that they were missing, you know? So stroke a genius for David Lee Roth for putting that together. If only he'd have been able to pull him back in for Skyscraper, because when you put Skyscraper up against Eat em and Smile, which Skyscraper's got the song Just Like Paradise, but really not a whole lot else. I mean, that is got to be one of David Lee Roth's weakest albums. It's got the one-song single... That is a pretty damn good tune, and it reminds me of Van Halen, too, a lot. But the rest of the album, not so good. So you got all the same players, but the difference this time is that the album's produced by David Lee Roth himself with some help from Steve Vai. So that tells you right there, Ted Templeman makes a huge difference on these albums. Also, other than being produced by Dave himself, it's credited for seven different engineers on that album. (laughs) I don't know why. Why wasn't Ted Templeman brought back in for Skyscraper like we all wish he would have been? I have no idea. I mean, at the time this album's being made, he's working on the debut album of the Bullet Boys, and he also works on an album by Honeymoon Suite. But I think if Dave would have said, hey, come on back, I think he would have passed on those, I'm guessing.
2: Maybe you wanted too much money. I don't know. That That is weird, though. I always wonder why he never produced that album.
1: Yeah, because it's the same band and everything. But, I mean, you put those albums up against each, o- each other track for track, not even close. I don't eat know. And smile I, I do like it. a few
2: of the tunes on it. It's
1: all right. But when you say, hey, eat 'em and Smile, I love that whole album, except for maybe the weird Frank Sinatra cover. And then you skyscraper and you go, "Yeah, I mean, it's got a couple of good songs on it. Not the same.
2: Damn Good, that's a good song. I had to, Damn
1: Good's all right. I mean, what else? Not a whole lot. <laughs> Knuckle Bones
2: is okay. Hot Dog and a Shake is goofy, but I like it. Yeah.
1: Um, it's no eat 'em and Smile, and it's not even close. And as far as I can tell, the only true difference between the two albums is the lack of Ted Templeman. So that's what I'd do. David Lee Roth, you're not going to produce this. You just concentrate On making some kick-ass songs, something that the Van Halen fans are going to love, something with some good cranking guitar, powerful drums, driving bass, and the ultimate front man out front delivering the goods. That's what you need to concentrate on. Let a guy like Ted Templeman help you to craft that into something that you can then take on the road and blow the Van Halen fans away because, I mean, fuck, they're stuck with Sammy Hagar. They're sad. It's up to you to deliver the goods in this era, and with this album, I just don't feel like they did it.
2: I remember that um, Skyscraper was the first vinyl album I ever bought with my own money.
1: Yeah? Yep,
2: I do remember that. I bought it uh, like a week after it got released. Because the MTV was already playing the uh, Just Like Paradise video like constantly.
1: Which, that's a great song, because that sounds like an old Van Halen tune.
2: Yeah, you can't help but like it. It's infectious. But I was just like and then i got it though and i was but i do remember being a little let down going oh there's some really crappy songs on here too yeah. but um but yeah no it's not it's definitely not as strong as as eat em and smile and yeah i think ted templeman would have probably had them go back to the drawing board on some of the songwriting
1: all right so so far we're doing good neither one of us is accusing the other of being crazy or stupid
2: no i can't argue with that one at all um okay good so this one i don't know if you'll argue with me on this one either um it, this is an album i actually like quite a bit but uh especially the era it came out in but when i think about could it have been better with a different producer i'm gonna say it would have um in 1980 alice cooper kind of started what was known as the blackout era and uh put out flush the fashion produced by roy thomas baker who was kind of hot on the heels of working with queen in the cars And kind of had you know this kind of thin popish you know style of doing albums, and he definitely brought that to this one. And I think it was an intentional decision for Alice to pick him as the producer of this because he wanted to compete with punk and new wave, which yes, that was the ethos of that of those genres was to basically you know strip everything down to nothing. And I do love a lot of songs on this record. Don't get me wrong. I think Pain and Clones are like two of the best songs he ever did. Oh, Um, for sure. Rem Facts is an awesome song. Yes. I uh, I even like Model Citizen. Yes. Aspirin Damage is goofy as fuck, but I love it. Um, But it's a a great record, so don't get me wrong about that. But this is an album where I wish Bob Ezrin was still on board and would have brought his production value to this album because... He knew how to beef up guitars and and make chordal passages more powerful and and there's enough dramatic stuff on here on this album to especially with could you imagine Bob Ezrin producing Pain? I mean I think it would have sounded really cool and I I just think it's uh it, you know it's one of those things where in hindsight I'd like to hear what Ezrin would have done with it for the time it came out it's great it's perfect for what it is because he was trying to do that whole new wave punkish thing but. To me, I'd love to hear Bob Ezrin remix this record himself and kind of beef up everything and do a modern version of it.
1: That's pretty interesting because I think the blackout era around here amongst us is kind of revered. You know, We like those albums from that weird period of Alice Cooper's career. And when we originally talked about doing this, I actually picked 10 and didn't realize we were just picking five. And I did have Alice Cooper on there and... But instead of that one, I went with Special Forces. But same thing, I wanted Bob Ezrin to come back and do Special Forces because I kind of like Flush the Fashion the way it is. You know, I like that. That's what he was going for, and I think they were able to achieve it. Yeah. Because Clones is, you know, that's a weird album, but it's not by far. It's not the worst album of the Blackout era. Oh, no, it's great. I think Special Forces is one of the worst things Alice Cooper's ever come out with. So
2: I love that album.
1: <laughs> I think that's the one Bob Ezrin comes back and fixes. But I don't necessarily disagree with yours either. Because I think in that blackout era, as we've seen, because I think the last thing Bob had done with them was, what, Welcome to My Nightmare?
2: Uh, no, it was. Was it Lace and Whiskey? Oh, Lace and Whiskey. Well, yeah, that's did, right. That's yeah, he, right. David Foster did From the Inside. Who did Lace and Whiskey? Was it? Yeah, Bob Ezrin. Yeah,
1: Lace so Bob, cause, yeah, because that was with Dick Wagner, too. So Lace and Whiskey was the last thing Bob Ezra did with him. And then it wouldn't be until Dada yep. that he comes back. So there's a break in between with a handful of albums that Alice used as other producers on, but. Honestly, I think they would all benefit and, and you know what the major, the best benefit to having Bob Ezrin produce Special Forces?
2: What's that?
1: He's not free to help create music from The Elder by Kiss. <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: So then Kiss has got to go get somebody else that goes, fantasy story? No, no, we're not doing that.
2: <laughs> the only reason, and I thought about Ezrin for Special Forces, because, and I don't, I don't know. I don't view any. I the, the I think zipper catches skin is my least favorite of all those blackout mm. ear, I, and I like it though. I like them all, but I almost picked Ezrin for this one. But the, to me, I don't think this album lend Special Forces lends itself enough to Ezrin's style to to make it as good as it could be. I, I almost think Ezrin would have walked in, heard the material for Special Forces, and just been like, "I don't know where to start." Yeah, because um, it was so off the rails and. It was you know, it was cocaine-fueled, and, and Alice was a mess. Cocaine's becoming a, a common theme here. But, uh, but no, flush the fashion, though, there's enough of that old-school Alice Cooper magic to it where I think Ezrin would have made it a great record.
1: I'll agree with that. I think Ezrin could only help improve all those albums, and I wish he'd have done that whole string of Blackout-era albums mm-hmm. together. I think it would have been great. A lot of good stuff either way, but I think those two make such a good team, especially when they're both whacked out on their minds on drugs that they come <laughs> out with some pretty magical stuff.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Okay. So far, so good. I like that. All right, here's one. This one might be just a little bit for me. Maybe Courtney Dold and a few other Enough's Enough fans that listen to this show. So for my next pick, I went with the debut album from Enough's Enough. Came out in 1989. Produced by the legendary Ron Fadgerstein. The
2: Ron Fadgerstein?
1: The Ron Fadgerstein. Amazing. Nobody really seems to know who Ron Fadgerstein is.
2: Sounds like a fake name.
1: (laughs) I got a guy I know. That when I've got an Enough's Enough history question, I go to him, and even he said, I really don't know. I think it was just maybe somebody from the record company that just stamped their name on it. And you look at the producers that are credited on the first early Enough's Enough albums, and it's like, who are these guys? You know, I tried to look up this Ron Fadgerstein and see, you know, who is he?
2: I'm looking him up right now.
1: (laughs) He hasn't really done anything else, so I don't think. Maybe he was the money man. I have no idea.
2: Adrian Ballou, and that looks like about the only thing, and something called The Bears. I don't know what that is.
1: Yeah, it's not the Super Bowl shuffle, I'll tell you that. But uh, So I'm guessing it's pretty obvious to see that these Enough's Enough albums are being produced by Chip and Donnie.
2: (laughs) Pretty much
1: is what it comes with with minimal supervision so they go hey you guys got it you know that was probably part of it you know like this guy's gonna pay us to have his name as the producer on the album we're gonna do all the work so we're saving all this money that's probably i'm guessing something close to that
2: google's also showing a uh, lawsuit against ron fadgerstein from illinois so ah uh, so yeah yeah, maybe he was a money man (laughs)
1: okay so no idea who ron is but, you know, he's got his name on it. But I always wondered, you know, Enough's Enough Snuff was such a good band, you know, but something kept them from the upper echelons. So I was thinking instead of Mystery Ron, it should have been Chris Thomas.
2: Who's Chris Thomas?
1: You're supposed to be like, The Chris Thomas? Yes, the, oh, Chris Tom- <laughs> the
2: Chris Thomas. The Chris Thomas?
1: Too late. If you don't know, he's best known for working with Paul McCartney. He's an English guy. He worked with Elton John. He did albums with the Pretenders. And he was even the guy that produced Nevermind the Bullocks by the Sex Pistols. You seeing the connection yet? Why this guy is going to be great for enough's enough that's going to launch them into superstardom? You don't. No. You don't, because none of those really have anything to do with Enough's Enough But what makes it interesting to me, and what made me pick Chris Thomas as the guy to produce the very first Enough's Enough album instead of just letting Chip and Donnie figure it out for themselves, was he was the guy that produced 1987's Kick by NXS. Oh. So imagine what this guy was able to do with NXS. They've got good songs, they're a decent band. And they look good. All the things you need in the mid to late 80s. Enough's enough. They got amazing songs. They look cool. And they're doing everything themselves. They need the help. What if a guy like Chris Thomas, who had just made NXS Superstars, one of the biggest songs and biggest albums of the year in 1987, what if he would have finished that up and took that magic and sprinkled it on that debut album by Enough's Enough. Would we be talking different about this band nowadays? Would they be huge superstars on the upper echelon of rock and roll royalty? Who knows? But I think it would have been interesting if somebody like that could have done something with that band, because Enough's Enough had it all, but they didn't have the something to rocket them into being household names. And I think... That might have only helped. Would have been to have somebody like that who had the ability to take a rock band and make them accessible enough over the airwaves that if enough's enough, would have had that. We might be talking different about that band today. What do you think?
2: It's an interesting idea. How do, where did you pull Chris Thomas from? How did you even make that connection?
1: I just was thinking about things, and I was looking at you know what came out about that at same time. Who would have been available If they would have had that. So I was looking at, okay, so this came out in 89. That means you would conceivably think it would be recorded in 88. And so then you'd have to look at, you know, who had just finished something up in 87. So I was looking at kind of like at this and this and, and throughout all this, because like I said, Ted Templeman, he did the Bullet Boys and Honeymoon Suite. Right. I'm sure if Dave Lee Roth would have said, hey, come back for this next album, he would have took that gig, you know, if, if contractually possible, he would have yeah. took it. And so I was looking at a lot of these like, OK, yeah, it's cool to say it'd be cool if this guy did that. But then go, oh, no, that's not going to work because that guy died the year before that came out. you know, So that's impossible. So I was looking at plausible situations, how it could work. And timing-wise, he would have just finished up Kick by NXS, another band with a weird-ass name. And he could have <laughs> jumped right to the next one and made enough enough superstars, too. Possibly.
2: That's an interesting idea. I, maybe the combination of that and if Donnie didn't piss off Clive Davis, they would probably be in much better shape.
1: This was pre-fucking up the relationship with legendary Clive oh, okay. Davis. so I
2: wasn't sure what year the, the Clive Davis thing went down.
1: That may have still ended up torpedoing the whole shit later on, but at the beginning, I think this could have helped.
2: Enough's Enough really is like the biggest should-have-been-bigger band, aren't they? I think so. Just, I think so. It's just a damn shame. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, like the, I like the idea. It's an interesting pick. I certainly wouldn't have picked that, but uh, that's pretty cool. All right, so um, my next one is, uh, I learned, well, you know, and this falls in line with what I learned this week, is if you want to generate a lot of feedback on a post, just um, say you don't like the new Iron Maiden album.
1: I like it. I think it's good. I think it's got some great songs on it.
2: Did you see my post about
1: it? Yeah, I saw it. I didn't comment on it because I disagree with you.
2: Oh, you're one of the only people I know who didn't comment on it. Good God. Boy, people get upset fast if you don't like everything Iron Maiden does. But uh I don't I don't like this record. <laughs> and I've tried it. I've tried listening to it several times. But I'm not a giant Iron Maiden fan. I never have been. Um but I, I respect them. I, I you know, what I like, I love, but I you know, I thought the Book of Souls was better than this, and but even that's not so much great. And I could have really picked I, I picked the new one to talk about in this episode because it's it's top of mind but it's also symptomatic of their work with kevin shirley and kevin shirley's been their producer ever since brave new world so we're going back a long ways now yeah several records and i just think they've gone downhill with pretty much every up every album that they've done um with him and it's like especially this new one the biggest thing that bugs me is Like the bass, Steve Harris's bass guitar has always been like the loudest thing on their records. At least since they started working with him,
1: that's part of their charm.
2: Well, I guess if you're if you're a fan, but I but the part of this one that really bugs me is yeah, that's the case again. But also, Nico's drums are way up in the mix, and it's like why are the drums the highest thing in the mix on this thing? And it's just it's produced so strangely. The guitars are buried. The songs are overlong, but I'm not going to get into the songwriting because that has nothing to do with Kevin Shirley, although, because we're just talking about producers here, but it's just one of those things where, I don't know, I just don't, I, I, and I'm wondering how much of this is really Kevin Shirley or how much is Steve Harris barking orders and Kevin going, yes, master, and doing what he wants. Yeah,
1: I mean, when bands get to a certain level... You know, when you're in a young and upcoming band and you get put in the studio with somebody who's a legendary producer and that producer goes, hey, sit, stay, play dead, you do it, you know, but there's a point in a lot of these bands careers where they become so big who comes in and tells them what to do? I mean, a lot of our favorite bands have been to that point where, to me, the producer is always supposed to be the guy that grabs the reins and directs it. You know, the animal knows where it wants to go, but it needs somebody to hold that leash to get them to where it needs to be so that the final destination is exactly the way they envisioned it before they started the quest of creating the new music. That's right. And so if the the animal's just dragging the, the producer around well, that's not going to work so great, you know. And a lot of bands have gotten to that point where they're megastars now, and nobody's going to come in and tell them what to do. You know, it's like the difference between, you know, Kiss Destroyer with Bob Ezrin and Kiss Revenge with Bob Ezrin. You know, at Destroyer, they did everything he told them to do. Jump, how high, here we go. Got heels on, jump a little higher. You know, or Ace Fraley just goes home. You know, I ain't dealing with it. You know, so there. He's holding the whip, but then you got to figure all them years later, or say if Bob Ezra would have come back for Love Gun or something at that point, Kiss isn't going to jump and run for him the way they had when they were young and hungry. Just you know, using Kiss for an example because that's what we do. So, yeah, it's it's weird. Like, does Iron Maiden truly hold the whip? Does is Iron Maiden the animal that drags the master, you know, or is it being guided? You know, you hate. You, there's really, you know, it's it's hard to tell these things. So, if you take him out of the situation and you, you're going to give him a different producer to work with for their new album, who would you have chosen?
2: Well, I, you know, and so we're we're dealing with a modern album here. So, I think you need to get, I, you know, and I love Martin Birch and everything, and I love Tom Allen and everything. But like, why don't the guy, the go-to guy that I think would inject some energy into this band and also Definitely make the instrument sound better and more balanced would be Andy Sneep. Because hmm. Andy Sneep, you know, I've in the he's the go to for more, you know, like the main thing people know him for now is he co produced Firepower for Judas Priest, which. Yeah, and was, did a hell of a job. But he's also done, you know, more modern day work with Megadeth. He's done all the newer Accept albums. He did Testament, Dark yeah. Roots of the Earth.
0: Yeah, Like
2: all of those albums sound. 20 times better than the new Iron Maiden sounds.
0: Ooh,
1: I like it. I'm not a big hater on the new album like you seem to be, but man, you know what? I like it. I like it a lot because if you hold up the sonic quality of the new Iron Maiden versus the latest Judas Priest, I gotta give it to Priest, man. I
2: really do. That album buries this Iron Maiden. And this Iron Maiden, and also it's like Iron Maiden is doing songs with epic lengths, but the songs don't go anywhere. And it's like they'll do, it's this they'll do the same little solo pattern three times in a song, or Bruce will fucking sing the same line, you know, twenty times in a row. And it's like, yeah, quit being so overindulgent. Cut the songs down, beef the guitars up, balance the instruments. Do do a few songs that are four minutes long. You don't need a twelve minute epic, and then Iron Maiden fans would be drooling over that. And yeah. I mean, I, Don't get me wrong, there's people and there's a lot of Iron Maiden fans that they they think this is amazing. I just think it sounds half-assed and boring to me. Um and I think Andy Sneap would definitely bring a kick in the ass to to that album and would make it a lot better.
1: I agree with that 100%. Definitely. I think my favorite thing that I've read is a review of the new Iron Maiden album. Mm-hmm was Ralph Vieira saying he was upset because there wasn't enough acoustic intros to the songs.
2: <laughs> somebody I saw somebody at Metal Slip said, Iron Maiden should just do a whole album of nothing but long intros because they love yeah. to do them so much.
1: <laughs> For real. you know, I went and bought it. I got it at Target. I actually put on a mask and went inside of Target to get an Iron Maiden CD, a double, two album, double album mm-hmm. on disc. And I brought it back. I listened to it. You know, I take the songs that I like and I put them on my iPod. But honestly, I ran those things through the Audacity first and trimmed them way the fuck down. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, because some of them intros are just so unneeded. You know, well, just, it's yeah, like just get on Here, Here's a ten minute epic. The intro is six minutes long. You know, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, I trimmed it down quite a bit. But I like my single edit for the iPods that I put together. Makes it a lot more listenable, a lot more enjoyable. But overall, I think it's pretty good. I think there's some really quality stuff on it. I don't think it's terrible, but I definitely agree that I think it could be majorly improved by making that producer switch right there.
2: Yeah. I mean I've I've given it like ten listens. I'll I'll keep trying, but and this might be what this might go down as like the doctor by uh cheap trick where I'll I'll go to it once a year. And try to listen to it. But I thought Book of Souls was better than this.
1: I don't think so. I like this one a little better than that.
2: Mm -hmm. different, Different strokes for different folks.
1: We'll be interested in hearing you, the listener's opinion, on the new Iron Maiden. You can leave those comments in the comment section as well. All right. So I got one here. This one I'm really... Really excited about because I think this would have been amazing. So I look at AC D C and they've had this long ass career. You've got the Bon Scott era and then they continue on just as strong as ever, if not more so, with Brian Johnson and this band has you know ran the test of time. You know, they're still putting out new music as of last year, you know. So you gotta give it up to the mighty, mighty ACDC. Have put out a lot of albums over the years, most of them. Pretty good. Some of them amazing, but most of them at least pretty good. One of my least favorite ACDC albums, and this is just me personally, I'm going to tell you, is 1985's Fly on the Wall.
2: Yeah, I'm not a fan of that one either.
1: When you talk about production not being up to par and up to snuff to the point where it kind of hurts the music a little bit, that's kind of what happened on that album, in my opinion anyway. But It was produced by Angus and Malcolm. You know, these guys have been working with producers over the years, but this one they decided to do themselves. Let me offer this as a thought. This is a double one. This is what should have happened, and it also is a little bit of an indulgence because, and Chris will agree, we love this guy so much. I'm going to give 1985's Fly on the Wall, not to Angus and Malcolm to produce, but to Michael Wagner. (laughs)
2: well you would make his dream come true if you did
1: (laughs) that's what i'm talking about that's the indulgence one i'm gonna give it to michael wagner because he deserves it and he told us that if he could have worked with any band that he never got to work with his number one choice would have been acdc i love you michael wagner in this fantasy world that we're creating here in this episode you get acdc and not only do you get acdc you get to get acdc in 1985 when they're not doing their best stuff but you could help them to do it and i got a feeling had michael wagner produced fly on the wall we'd talk about that album a whole lot differently as opposed to never
2: really talking about it at all i agree I, i it'd be interesting to hear what he would do with it although michael's such a fan i don't know that he would try to change too much about them though he He'd probably let let them be themselves.
1: But he would help them be their best selves. Yeah. I think it would make a huge difference to that album. I think it would be way more revered. I think Michael Wagner would only improve the situation. And if any album out of the ACDC catalog needs the help that a guy like Michael Wagner could have given, it'd be that one.
2: As long as they uh, keep Sink the Pink on the album. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that song is so horrifically stupid but i love it at the same time but it just
1: jams yeah Yeah. see they had the songs but something got lost in translation there (laughs) that i think you know had you had you had somebody there like michael wagner to hold the reins especially we're talking in 1985 i don't know exactly what he was working on docking or accept or something along those lines in round 85 but uh yeah i would oh man i just salivate just thinking about how crazy awesome that could be
2: yeah and there's some good songs on here i I haven't looked back on it in a long shake your foundations is a cool song i like that hey
1: there's some good stuff but it's not it's not a complete album by no means there's some real kind of clunkers on that album too
2: yeah and i'm not i'm not the biggest fan of simon wright's drumming on it either um but yeah i it'd be interesting to hear what mike what michael could do with them but yeah i know i mean any they definitely it would definitely be better than a self-produced album i'll say that yeah for sure all right so i guess we're down to the to the choices where each of us have the same artists
1: okay yeah because we're not doing this top five or top ten no. style or anything because like i said we were thinking about maybe coming back and doing this again because there's so many possibilities to it maybe next time we'll take some some of our friends that maybe want to come on the show with us and share theirs. You know. Yeah. So that'd be, that's something we can look forward to doing. And like I said, before we started recording today, we did some recording for the Chris and Aaron show where we discussed what we were doing today, and we tried to figure out if we were going to pick any same albums or any same producers. And so we figured out that without giving it away to each other, that we each picked a Kiss album, and we each picked an Ozzy album. So we decided to save those for the end. So, Chris, mm-hmm. I've got an Ozzy album yeah. that I'm going to switch producers on. And you've got an Ozzy album you're going to switch producers on. What do yeah. you got?
2: Well, it's a perfect segue because it uh, involves Michael Wagner also. So, um, And this is a bit of a cheat because he kind of was the producer for this record. It's a complicated story. but oh, yeah. so. You know, Michael did "No More Tears," which one of Ozzy's big might be Ozzy's biggest solo album. I'm not sure, um, but you know, huge record. Then around '94, he started working on uh, the next record, and actually, early on in '94, he was actually writing with Steve Vai for the record, and apparently, they had a falling out. Um, but uh, the Ozzy got together with Michael Wagner, and they did. They recorded songs with Mike Inez, Randy Castillo, and Zach, basically the touring band. Yeah, and and it's with the intention to make it sound like No More Tears, and because obviously, why would you you know meddle with success? And they did that in Reno in early '94, after the tour was over, and they had seven songs done. <laughs> And then, uh, Michael told us this story himself, and my jaw hit the floor. But although it it shouldn't have, because it's record companies being record companies. But then, they rec- So they turned in like some of the songs, or they heard some of the rough mixes, and Epic Records said, uh, "We want it to sound like Soundgarden."
1: Yeah, Bad Motorfinger had come out and was huge, and then they said, "Oh, music's changed. You know, things have changed for bands like Motley Crue. Things have changed for bands like Poison." Well, then clearly that must mean things have to change for a guy like
2: Ozzy. Yeah. And so they went ahead and they, and Michael of course came back and was like, well, if, if you don't want it to sound like a Michael Wagner record, then I'll just drop off the project Yeah, be quit. And then, um, the record company meddled even further and wound up having a different lineup record it, um, with, uh, Michael Beanhorn or Beinhorn producing it. And, uh. It, uh, you know, and I, you know, I, I got this story out of, we got, well, you know, we got the story out of Michael just purely on me mentioning that I loved, uh, that I liked the, the Osmosis record. And, um, not even realizing he was a part of it. We were just having a chat. And he goes, do you like that that album? And I said, yeah. Well, and what do was, you think
1: like, of this? <laughs> yeah, He's like, Come,
2: he was like and this is after we've been recording with him for like two hours. We were getting ready uh-huh. to leave. This was goes, one
1: of the most amazing things that ever happened to us as a show.
2: Yeah, and then he goes, "Come back in here for a minute." <laughs> and that's when he explained the whole story behind. It. He's like, "I actually was going to produce this whole record and like yeah. they had done Perry Mason See You on the Other Side tomorrow and um, Old LA tonight. Those albums got those songs got re-recorded. But Michael let us hear, I think it was Perry Mason and See You on the Other Side um, in the studio." And it was way different. It sounded yeah. a lot more like the No More Tears version. It and was great. Sounded amazing. And um, it's just like I, I'd love to hear that full album with with his work on it. And especially like See You on the Other Side. Like there, there's, a, there's like a there's a gospel section, like a gospel choir. Or there's a saxophone on it, which. Not oh, normally, yeah, I forgot my,
1: about the saxophone.
2: <laughs> yeah, like, not normally our thing, but it worked really well for that song. You know, it actually had a real epic type of vibe to it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he mentioned that Ozzy actually cried when he heard it.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: Um, in the uh, studio. But it was just funny because of me going, oh, I like that record. He, oh, you like it, huh? Well, come listen to this. and Yeah, uh, let, me,
1: let me give you a reason to like it.
2: Yeah. And, um, but no, it's, I still like the record, but, uh, but yeah, after hearing what he was doing with it and hearing that lineup record it with Mike Inez, Randy and Zach, I mean, yeah. damn, imagine hearing that full. And what we heard were pre-production demos, basically. That's not the full on mix. So I imagine it would have sounded even more epic when it came out, but it's just, it's just so annoying. The, that's the nineties summed up right there. You got a, a guy that produced no more tears that sold, I don't know how many countless millions of albums. And then that record company goes, nah, we want to sound like Soundgarden now. Like, Get the fuck out of here.
1: Yeah, they didn't love and appreciate Ozzy like they should to know that even though the music scenery was changing, Ozzy Osbourne was iconic enough and legendary enough and, you know, withstanding for a long enough time that he would have stood on his own. If they would have kept going the course of even maybe even surpassing what they did with Osmosis had Michael Wagner stuck around on it. It's hard to tell. But from what we heard, I can tell you, you gotta wonder what the whole album would have been like if Michael Wagner would have been able to finish it with Ozzy and that band. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing we probably would have liked it more. It'd be awesome if Ozzy and Michael were able to get together and, you know, release a Michael Wagner sessions version of that album i'd love to hear those songs in their full best you know in the yeah. best presentation of them would be amazing
2: the uh, i think perry mason and see on the other side have been released in some sort of compilation or box set stuff later but i'd still don't think it's finished product it's not no uh-huh. it's not mixed mastered and everything so um i would have been interested to hear what they could what the final product would have been with that but uh yeah Good old Michael Wagner came up twice tonight.
1: (laughs) Gotta love him. You know, we love him. We've got a lot of respect for him and all the amazing albums he's produced over the years. And really, what it comes down to with him is the sound, the sonic power of it, the style in which he produces. You know, he's always able to get the best sound and the best performances out of anybody he's working with. So a guy like Michael Wagner, I mean, we could just make a whole show Albums we wished Michael Wagner would have produced. You know?
2: <laughs> We could do it easily.
1: We could do multiples of those. So, you know, the fact that he's only come up twice on this episode is kind of a miracle in itself. But, yeah, those are that's a good one. I like that. All right, so I've got an Aussie one, too. But I'm going to come up to current times. I'm going back to last year with Ordinary Man. Yeah, we all know the story, Ozzy trying to be hip and cool with the young kids. He's got Andrew Watt producing, which we know from Black Country Communion and a hell of a guitar player, but he's also got the Post Malone crew meddling around in it, too. And while there were some good songs on it, not really what a classic Ozzy fan was really looking for on that. And maybe if Ozzy's listening to this, or maybe if Sharon's even listening to this, hi, Sharon and Ozzy, we love you why not this for the next album i know everybody says you're already working on it why not bring back max norman oh the classic ozzy producer i mean he did those first three albums amazing how cool and fun would it be to try to recapture some of that magic from the classic ozzy era i know it's hard because a lot of the players aren't around anymore but get Get who you can. I mean, get Zach Wilde back in the picture and get Max Norman in the studio. And you think, Max Norman, he's a little old man by this point, right? Well, he's still out there doing stuff. He produced three albums in 2016 and he mixed the latest album by the Red Dragon Cartel, Patina, in 2018. And in 2020, I mean, it might have been hard to turn down this one, but he did some work on an album by a Swedish doom metal band, called Sorcerer.
2: Oh, I have to check that out.
1: So Max Norman's still out there. you know. I don't think he's full on, but I definitely don't think he's 100% retired. And I got to imagine if Ozzy would have said, Max, come on, let's see if we can recapture some of that old magic in the studio. Let's do it like we used to do it. Let's try to recreate the best classic Ozzy sounding album we can do. And I think everybody would have been a lot happier than what they were with ordinary man. I think Max Norman and the effort to bring back a classic sound to Ozzy Osbourne, which, you know, this next one could be his last one. Give it to us good, Ozzy. Give us Max Norman and a classic sound.
2: I would absolutely be a first day buyer for an Ozzy record with Max Norman producing. I would be I would love to hear that. Oh yeah. That's a great idea. I And, and actually, the Ordinary Man record kind of grew on me over time. I, I, It's not... I think people were kind of blowing that one out of proportion for how bad it was. Yeah, the, 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 the low lights are low, but there were some decent songs on that record, I thought.
1: I don't know. If you stand up Ozzy's collection, I think it's way towards the bottom, for sure.
2: I liked it better than some of the other more modern releases he's put out. Yeah? I, I thought it was more interesting than some of the Gus G material.
1: It had its moments and it had some good songs, but it also had Elton John and Post Malone.
2: I like that he took a little, a few more chances. It didn't sound like a cookie cutter Ozzy record. That's, but I like it when people stretch like that. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I and I and one of the Post Malone songs I like. So what? What the hell do I know? Maybe yeah, i What the hell
1: here. do you know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm gonna get skewered for this episode. Iron Maiden you fans, Ozzy so, yeah. fans, I'm pissing everybody off today.
1: You are in so much trouble.
2: (laughs) Hey, did you know KISS sucks, by the way? Oh, boy, here we go.
1: (laughs) This wouldn't be an episode of the Decibel Geek Podcast if we didn't talk about KISS. And if we're both left to our own devices to pick albums for any kind of list, Mm -hmm. odds are we're probably both going to include a KISS album in there. So this day is no exception because for the rest of the show, we're talking about KISS. Yes a lot of changes could be made in the history of this band things that could have changed things for the better maybe the worse but there's so much stuff you could swap around and fantasy play what if this producer did this what if that producer did that what kiss producer would you swap out
2: all right so so many kiss albums i could have picked here Um, yeah because there's a lot that i would have done differently with producers uh one that immediately jumped to mind was Hot in the Shade, but I decided not to go with that one. I want to go back to the early days. And I picked one album that does get brought down a lot for its production. I think my producer choice is going to be a little weird. I picked Hotter Than Hell, by Kiss. Okay.
1: Yeah, not and, sonically the best Kiss album.
2: No. And um, produced by Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise, um, who did the first album, too. Um but numerous reasons why this album needed another producer, but there's rumors that they were trying to go for a Black Sabbath sound on this record. If that's the case, they failed.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, they they definitely got some dirge going on in some of that stuff.
2: There are a few dark things on this record, you know, like Parasite and Strange Ways, Going Blind, but there's also a lot of straight-up, just good-time rock-and-roll-sounding songs on here, too. So you've got the title track, Mainline got to choose i still think with the right production and the right push got to choose would have been a massive hit i think uh that song had radio single written all over it and i think i always say if a band like free or the rolling stones had put out got to choose i think it would have been a huge hit yeah with that said the dirge sounding production of this album really hurts it um and I rarely ever go back to Hotter Than Hell just because of the production. Uh, the person I would replace Kerner and Wise with would be Glenn Johns. Hmm. Glenn Johns has an illustrious career. Rolling Stones, worked yeah. with the Beatles, you know, Let It Be, worked with the Eagles. And I, I know a lot of people might be like, well, what does that have to do with Kiss? Because Kiss was a little bit heavier. But he also produced Who's Next by The Who?
1: Which is a pretty rocking album by Who standards.
2: And honestly, the the influence of The Who never really gets brought up with KISS, um, but you know they were influenced by The Who.
1: Oh, big time. I mean, whose song do they use to play before they come out and hit the stage most of the time? Well,
2: that, and that's Won't Get Fooled Again. is That's kind of my template on why I could imagine Glenn Johns producing Hotter Than Hell. Because, you know, and it was funny... Um, Probably my all time favorite memory of the reunion tour was when the with the curtain before the curtain dropped they played Won't Get Fooled Again. Yeah. And the whole part with the drum part in the middle and Daltrey Screams, that's when the curtain would, would come down and cover the stage before they came on. Awesome. And I remember mentioning that and then of course the the first line after that is meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So it was perfect for the reunion tour. Um and I mentioned that to the man, the guy that was managing me at pizza hut when I was working at pizza hut at the time. And he, he laughed cause he was a teenager in the he goes, that's so fucked up. I was like, what? He goes, I saw them on the love gun tour and they, they did the exact same thing before. Oh, the show. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So that, and you know, kiss played part. of won't get fooled again in concert when they do lick it up. And that song is like kind of tied to them. Um, but, you know, Daltrey had to have been an influence on Paul, obviously, and Townsend, you know, Ace, I'm sure, listened to a lot of Townsend growing up. But we Won't Get Fooled Again is kind of the template for what I would imagine Glenn Johns could have brought to the table as far as kind of a like a grand sound to Hotter Than Hell, more, much more open, less dirgy. And imagine Got to Choose with who's next production, you know. Wow. It would have been a huge hit.
1: I love it, man. I love that. That's way outside the box. And yeah, I got to think that would have been pretty freaking awesome and probably would have made Hotter Than Hell a way better album than it already is.
2: I think they would have broke big with that record before they even needed to do it with Alive.
1: Wow. Yeah, I like that. That's a good one. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I try to imagine it. That's amazing. All right, cool. Well, mine is not nearly outside the box as yours. All right. But I'm going to save Kiss in 1998. We're changing Psycho Circus. I hope so. Oh, God. It's the first album with all four of the originals in over 20 years. It was produced by Bruce Fairbairn, known for... God, mega hits, Aerosmith, Permanent Vacation, and Pump, Poison's Flesh and Blood, Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet, and New Jersey, Mm -hmm. ACDC's Razor's Edge, and the live album. I mean, from 86 to 96, he was the man. He was um, Bob
2: Rock's mentor.
1: If you were a hard rock band, but you needed that pop feel to it that made it accessible, Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy was better than Midas. Better than Midas, because everything he produced Turned into at least gold, yep. and most of the time went multiple multiple platinum, so you if think? you were looking for something that you know you 're going to release and it 's going to become a huge hit, and you 're a rock band with a hard edge to you, that 's the guy you want yep. but really truly, I mean did it really matter? I mean, it could have been anybody in that in that spot because. Kiss was already fractured. I mean, they had just gotten back together. They were super successful on the reunion tour, but they were already fractured going into this because there's already dispute about money. Ace Fraley and Peter Chris come back into this feeling like, hey, we're original members. Without us, this don't happen. We should get an equal cut where Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley were like, hey, you guys forfeited that years ago, and we carried on with the name and kept it alive, so now you work for us. So a perfect way to pull all that back together and like I said mine's not nearly outside the box as yours but I think that the guy that should have done that album and would have been perfect for it would have been Eddie Kramer. You bring Eddie Kramer back in because everybody's going to be at least somewhat comfortable with him. You know, you you can't bring Bob Ezrin back for Psycho Circus because as we know Bob Ezrin's contribution to that album is the worst song on the album. So I can't imagine that Bob (laughs) Ezrin would have made it any better. I'm guessing he would have made it way worse and made it crazy, artsy thing. So no Bob Ezrin. Let's bring back Eddie Kramer. But it's going to take more than Eddie Kramer. It's going to take a commitment from the band. Okay, you guys are not feeling equal as money makers in this whole situation here. But here's the situation where you guys can be equals. Set the money aside. Set the differences aside. Let's write some songs that are going to kick ass and be the greatest thing that you guys have ever done. So, Peter Chris, you bring me your best song. And Ace Fraley, you bring me your best song. And then Gene Simmons brings one. Paul Stanley brings one. And the rest of them are songs that they work on together. These guys aren't going to say, well, I'm going to save this for a solo project because at this point, they should be all in on KISS. And if this album would have been as good as it should have been, no Bruce Kulick, no Tommy Thayer, no Kevin Valentine, just KISS. With Eddie Kramer in there, laying it down, classic KISS style, giving every member their due, letting everybody contribute. And really, it takes him and the attitude of, We're going to put out the best album of our career. Now, at that time, well, Eddie Kramer in the 90s, he was winning Grammy Awards, and he was working with Jimi Hendrix's estate, and he was working on producing all that unreleased music that came out in the 90s once the Jimi Hendrix estate got the rights to all that stuff back. And if that would have been a thing where Kiss would have said, all right, you know, maybe the money's not equal. Let's at least make it right on the album and come together as a team Because we know these guys can write great songs together, it would have been awesome to see what Psycho Circus could have been if it wasn't the bullshit album it ended up being. Right. And I think with that attitude and Eddie Kramer, I'd be interested to see what that would have been like.
2: So on this one though, you're you're not only you're not only proposing a producer switch, you're you're proposing an attitude <laughs> switch for the whole band. Yeah,
1: it's. It's got to be because I mean Bruce Fairbairn's going to go in there and he's like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to make this be epic right. and poppy and something that can be played on radio. Right. But Kiss isn't Aerosmith and Kiss isn't Bon Jovi. He's yeah. not. They're they're not those bands that are going to automatically get airplay when their new album comes out yeah. because you know for one they've been gone for a long time. They haven't put out new music in forever. This is the return of the original members, but. You know, when it comes to like corporate radio and the corporate side of music, Kiss isn't treated the same way as Aerosmith and Bon Jovi and bands like that. So, if you're not going to get it either way, you might as well just come together and say, let's put out the greatest Kiss album that we could possibly do. Because, I mean, in years since, Paul Stanley has said, you know, the main reason we kept going is Kiss, and this might just be another one of the Paul stories, but the reason we kept going is because we didn't want Psycho Circus to be our last album because, you know what, it sucked, you know, which it's hard to disagree with that. I wouldn't want that to be Kiss's last album, but that whole situation still makes me sad. What it could have been and what it ended up being.
2: Well, and that the main that's the issue is they they the first mistake they had was they didn't make a record for their fans and that but the the ultimate irony is most of the album is them pounding their chest about how close they are to their fans while making a record that basically turned their back on their fans and totally. they tried they tried to go for the radio hit and it's like they were doomed from the start with that and like you said Bruce Fairbairn is only known for producing radio friendly albums and I love what Bruce Fairbairn does and honestly from a production standpoint, I think that's the one good thing about Psycho Circus is all the instruments sound great, but...
1: Um, it's just not who you, they want you to think is actually playing right.
2: them. And, I mean, I, but, I mean, he was the wrong producer to start with because, I mean, I remember Paul saying in an interview that if it was up to Bruce Fairbairn, every song would have sounded like Within, the Gene song. Oh, wow. Because he, he loved that, and he wanted it to sound like Carnival of Souls, basically. Yeah. and uh, Which I wouldn't have minded, but it's just... It, but it was doomed from the from the get-go and so yeah, I mean, if you bring Eddie Kramer in, but it would have taken an entire attitude shift and yeah. every, if they would have taken a good year, even two years to put the record together and do it the right way, you would probably have some strong material, but like the minute I heard it, I'm like, would like raise your glasses and we are <sighs> one, and it's like, what are y'all doing, man? Yeah. you are not Aerosmith Aerosmith can get away with doing poppy stuff I don't know why aerosmith is allowed to get away with it and kiss isn't but that's just the way the universe works you know
1: because kiss is supposed to be cooler than that
2: but I mean everybody but Aerosmith has always gotten a pass on going to the pop side of things but they still maintain their credibility that is a a weird mystery of rock and roll though isn't it I don't
1: know. Network. I don't think they have much credibility anymore. Well,
2: but I mean, with the general public, though.
1: I mean, well, sure, general public loves shit yeah. like that, you know. But you can listen to a song like "Finally Found My Way" that Peter well, Chris sings, and it's horrible. But you know that that was in response to "I Don't Want to Miss a Thing."
2: Oh, and especially nothing can keep me from you from the Detroit Rock City soundtrack. That's a exactly you lift know of
1: it that song was so huge and so popular that every band that came out after them tried to replicate it and you know I was never a big song a big fan of that song by Aerosmith and I definitely don't like when Kiss tries to do it man it just burns you know because that could have maybe that could have maybe cemented some of the fractures in the band you know we're unhappy financially when you're talking to Peter Chris and Ace Fraley but if their artistic sides because Ace and Peter were the artistic guys, you know. They weren't the money guys. They were the they were the what, the left side of the brain is Ace Fraley and Peter Chris and the right side is Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Yeah. But when they work together, it works, you know. It, it comes together perfectly and they are able to create this amazing <laughs> stuff. But if you a lot of times, when you've got an artist like that, it's got the heart of an artist. You know, Ace Fraley's always said, I want to be the rocker. You know, I don't want to follow trends. I want to be unique and do what I'm known for doing. Yeah. You could give that to Ace. You could let Peter Chris say, you know, hey, we're not going to pass on some bullshit song and make you sing it. Peter Chris, you bring your best shit. You know, we want to see what you got. And Ace Fraley and Peter Chris would have showed up with something they were proud of and felt good about. And then you play those songs out when you're touring for the album. And then the hurt of the financial situation doesn't sting quite as bad because the artist is being satisfied. And I think it would have made a huge difference as far as the longevity of the Reunited Kiss would have went if they could have done something like that.
2: Yeah, we could do a whole Torpedo Dudes episode just on the Psycho Circus debacle. Um, Maybe we should. We probably should. But yeah, I mean, I I don't think we we didn't really fight about anything on this. I thought we would have no. more arguments. But uh, I, I'm interested to hear the feedback of what you guys listening think about this.
1: Yeah, I want to hear why you think Chris is dumb for not liking Iron Maiden.
2: Oh, that. I, mean, yeah, I want to know, know why dumbing. you think.
1: <laughs> I want to know why you think Chris is dumb for thinking Post Malone is so cool.
2: I never I said know... I thought he was so cool. <laughs> don't put words in my mouth. <laughs>
1: And we want to know who you would swap producers for certain albums. We want to know what you guys think and what you guys would like to see if you had control of that sort of time machine like we took a ride in today and jumped around history and picked and choosed who produced what. I think we got some winners, but we want to hear what you think. So the best way to do that always, our Facebook page. I think that's where it all happens at. You'll see this post underneath there. There's a place to comment. We want to hear from you because it's part of the community. It's not me and Chris just running our mouths all the time. We want to know what you guys think because we love you and we appreciate you and we respect your opinions. So let us have it over there on the Facebook page. Check out Pantheon Podcasts. If you like music podcasts, that's where all the good ones are at. You can almost guarantee if they are on the Pantheon roster, it's going to be something worth checking out for sure. Also, check us out on Instagram. You want to see those awesome Ugly Kid Joe photos? Yeah, you do. The only place to do that is on Decibel Geek Instagram. Of course, we've got our YouTube channel, which is going to last forever in memory and honor of Rock and Ron Runyon. We're going to figure out ways to keep that thing going somehow or another. We might need some help. If you are a fan of rock and roll and you think maybe you could try to do what Rock and Ron did, Hey, it doesn't hurt to ask, you know, reach out to us and tell us what you think. That's how it all started with rock and run. He just said, Hey, I love what you guys are doing. I want to be a part of it. And he became a huge part of it. We're gonna need some help to fill the void that we've lost. You know, we we've never really truly filled the void from losing Adam Cox on our Facebook page, and we've never. I can't even imagine filling the void left behind by Rock and Ron Runyon on Decibel Geek TV. But we got to keep that thing alive somehow, so that it doesn't just fade into obscurity. Because that was Rock and Ron's baby, and we want to keep it alive. So if you're thinking helps out with that, you know, it never hurts to reach out and ask. We can talk to you and figure out what we're going to do because right now honestly we don't even know all we know is we love doing this show and we're going to keep doing it
2: that's right yeah thanks uh for everybody for listening Uh, looking forward to the feedback and uh we'll be back next week
1: see ya